It's good to be back with you. I was here for uh, your opening day of the study of Galatians and introduced uh, the book as a whole. Uh, now I'm here for your closing day, uh, Galatians chapter 6. We looked at the first half of Galatians 6 in the morning. Now we're going to be looking at the last half of Galatians 6 tonight. So we're in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes to the Galatians, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. He's speaking here of financial support, in the sense those who are receiving the ministry or helping support uh, those who are doing the ministry. Uh, Paul, for example, as a career, uh, supported himself by sewing tents. Uh, that did get in the way of his calling by the Holy Spirit and the sending out from the Church of Antioch uh, to be a cross-cultural pioneer missionary uh, evangelist and church planter. And so whereas uh, some were coming to know the Lord, uh, they then uh, decided uh, to support him in the ministry. Uh, take, for example, the Philippians, if you are in Galatians, just a few pages to the right is uh, Philippians. Uh, the Philippians were more generous than most of the churches that he founded. In fact, he says uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, uh, that they were participating in the gospel from the first day until now. And so he did not have to uh, sew tents in the middle of the night to support himself while he was uh, working during the day evangelizing and church planting because churches like Philippi were in support of him. He, as he wrote the letter to the Philippians at this point, uh, was in prison. Uh, he was uh, already past his uh, initial uh, hearing and was now able to rent private quarters, though he was guarded. And a gift arrived from the Philippians. Now, he knew that they couldn't afford to send the gift that they had sent him uh, to help him pay the rent while he was awaiting trial before Caesar. And so he has that awkward problem of thanking them for the gift, but then suggesting you don't need to see, uh, send any more. I'm doing just fine. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, for example, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's saying, you stopped giving to me for a while because you couldn't. You didn't have the money. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So as a Christian worker who is being supported by those he's led to Christ, you'll notice that there's an ebb and a flow in the way in which the support comes. So sometimes he feels uh, that he's well supported. Other times he says he's actually gone hungry. And you can sense uh, he's relating the story to them to basically say, I have everything I need. I'm not expecting you to send any more. Frankly, you can't afford to send any more. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. 
You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. In other words, Epaphroditus didn't spend part of it on the way to Rome. I have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So whereas Paul is exhorting uh, here in the Galatian letter for the Galatians that the normal practice is those who are receiving ministry are supporting the ministers, uh, there have been exceptions in cases. Uh, so in the Philippian case, he's saying, I have all I need, don't send any more. Uh, I understand how things are tight with you. With the Corinthians, it was very interesting. In fact, the Philippians were supporting Paul as he ministered to Corinth. And Paul wanted to teach the Corinthians that they too needed to support uh, their ministers. However, he says, frankly, I don't trust you to support me because you're going to become confused and you're going to think you're going to contribute to your salvation. And so I won't take anything from you. In fact, at one point he'll say, I robbed other churches to serve you because you were so immature, I didn't feel I could take anything from you. But he still says, you should have supported. In fact, that's one of the criticisms those who oppose Paul say about him. He must not be a true apostle. He must not be a true minister because he doesn't accept financial support from you. Listen to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, arguing that he has the right to be supported. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine thee is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? In other words, I'd die if I didn't have food and drink. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers and Lord and Cephas? All the apostles, including Peter, were married. And when they traveled, they took their wives with him. Paul was not married. We don't know if he'd never married or if he was a widower, but we know him not to be married at this time. And so he says, in fact, I would need extra if I had a wife because as people travel with their wives, they should be supported as well. Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Now imagine that for a moment. You have soldiers out on the front lines and they have to earn their own living while they're out in the front lines. No, we don't do it that way. They're full-time soldiers. We support them. We send them what they need to eat and to have uh, the wherewithal to fight. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also save these things? For it's written in the law of Moses. This is the most hilarious interpretation, I think, almost anywhere in Scripture. Quoting from Deuteronomy, he says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
What that means is the, the ox is moving around, helping you separate the grain from the chaff of the corn. But he says, it's only fair if the ox has to work in producing this grain, separating it from the chaff, that it should get to eat while it's working. And so in the Mosaic law was a command, you can't muzzle the ox. So I've always had this thought that if you're working at McDonald's selling hamburgers, you should get to eat hamburgers. If you're, if you're selling Coke, you should get to drink Coke. It's right here in the Bible. But here's why I say this is hilarious, because he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now pause and think about that. God was teaching a lesson, not because he's so much worried about whether the oxen eat. He's teaching us a lesson that you ought to be able to have a portion of that for which you are working. So if you're producing grain by separating it from the chaff, you should get some grain to feed your own family, to eat yourself. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. That's why I say it's an amazing interpretation to say God wrote the law for us to learn a lesson about how we should be able to eat the fruit of our labors. Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? And again, this is very interesting. The whole reason I take you to this is though the normal practice, as he's teaching here in Galatians, is for the students to support their teachers, for those ministered to, to support those who are ministering to them. In the case of the Philippians, he said, you can't afford it. Don't give anymore. It was subtle, but that's what he was saying. Here, Paul says, it is my right that you support me, but I'm not going to take your money. Why? Because you're too immature to give me the money. Because you'll think that you're in some way contributing to your salvation by supporting me, and that's not true. So he says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we would cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share in the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And so he's saying the normal rule is you could be in the ministry and be supported to be in the ministry. We do this with cross-cultural missionaries. We send them overseas and we support them in ministry. We do this with what we call full-time workers. Uh, we support them in their ministry. He says, verse 15, but I've used none of these things. I'm not writing these things so it'll be done so in my case, or it'd be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will I have a stewardship entrusted me, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Again, in summary, what we've been saying is the normal practice is we support people in gospel ministry. We support people uh, in uh, cross-cultural church planting and evangelism. We support what we call full-time workers. 
otherwise, Paul would be so intense all the time and would not have the time to actually help the folks. So he writes uh, to the Galatians that it would be wise for them to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Then he applies this to the way in which we invest what the Lord has given to us to use it for good rather than spending it on ourselves. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. It's a common proverb. It actually appears several times uh, in the scripture. He's saying, you can't fool God. You can't snub him. You can't turn up your nose at him. This is true. What you sow is what you reap. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that I am sowing? For those of you who view that as a $10 word, what we're talking about is planting seed in the ground. So if you take the seed of a corn plant and plant that in the dirt, water it, let the sun hit it, uh, pull weeds and the like, it will grow into a corn stalk and eventually you'll have the fruit of corn. You're not going to get apples from a corn seed. So what you sow is what you're going to reap. And how well you sow it and where you sow it is going to affect how much you get or whether you get anything at all. He's using this horticultural example of farming, not because he's trying to teach us how to farm. He's trying to teach us how to take what he has given to us and invest it wisely. And he's saying, how much fruit will you bear with what I've entrusted to you? He had just applied it to money, suggesting that we could use it for the Lord's work. Rather than buying ourselves more things, we could invest it in the Lord's work. In this case, he's saying, you have to ask yourself first, what am I sowing or planting? And then in what field, or you could say the quality of the dirt, the soil, in what field or what soil am I sowing? And he uses this as a picture of whether I'm sowing to my flesh. In other words, I'm being selfish. Everything he's giving me, I'm spending on myself for my own selfish pleasures. Or... He could say, am I sowing it to the Spirit? Am I using what he has given me to advance the spread of the gospel, to advance the growth of Christians, uh, to advance God's kingdom? Speaking about uh, a, a person who is selfish, just yesterday I was talking to a parent of a student at a local university uh, who was frustrated that uh, we're only eight weeks into the semester and his son had squandered his money. The parents are paying the tuition. He got a nice scholarship because he's a smart kid. He came with $1,500 of savings eight weeks ago, and he is down to $300 already. And the parents are going like, $1,500 down to $300? What did you spend it on? That, that is amazing. Kids can find things to spend their money on quite easily, and it can evaporate quite easily. And the parents were basically saying to me, 
what should we do as parents when we talk to him? Should we ask him questions about how he's spending his money? And I said, you are completely free as parents. Now, this is the first time he's away from home. He's a freshman in college and everything. Uh, but you can ask questions. It's his money. He earned it. But you could ask questions about wisdom and how you're spending it. In the same way, Paul is exhorting the Galatians, be careful how you use what the Lord's entrusted to you, that you do it so in a way that actually advances God's kingdom as opposed to advancing your own fleshliness. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he'll also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, his own selfishness, will from the flesh reap corruption. So if you spend everything on yourself, and we're not talking just money, we're talking time, we're talking talents, we're talking about every aspect of your being. If you spend it all on yourself, it's just going to end up in selfishness. He calls it here corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the one who actually, we could use the term invest, the one who invests in the Spirit's work will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's saying it not only affects you personally as to who you are as a person, it affects all the people around you. One of the life lessons I had as a young person, I was still in high school, had very little money, just the small amount of money I was earning on the side, and my dad was paying my way to go to camp, and we had a 16-year-old boy my age who had been emancipated from his parents. His parents were so bad, he went before a judge, and the judge declared him emancipated, which meant he's now out on the streets on his own. He had been sleeping in the park there in Upland. He went to our high school, he went to our local church, and I asked him, can you go to camp? He had no money to go to camp. And I said, if I pay your way, will you go to camp? And he said, I'd love to go. I paid his way. I watched the Spirit work on him all week, and when he spoke on Friday night at Victory Circle, when you give testimonies as to how the Lord has worked in your life that week, and I heard his testimony, I said, that's the best money I ever invested. And I was only 16. I was learning the concept of taking what the Lord has given us and investing it to help other people in their spiritual walk. That's the kind of thing he's speaking about here. So rather than saying the most important thing to me is my own pleasures, my own entertainment, you'd say like, how is that advancing the whole reason why the Lord's placed me on earth? Should I just focus on my own personal entertainment or should I actually help people? And he's saying it'd be wiser for us to ask the spirit for leadership as to how we would help others. So he says... Verse 10, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So the range of the people to whom we ought to minister is everyone. And then he says we have a priority and a special obligation to fellow believers. And I think this would keep in the same theme that he's been developing as we've looked at uh, clear uh, from verse 6. And that is how we use our money, how we use our time, how we use our talents 
Are we investing them in serving well for the Lord, and are we making a difference? We want to make sure that we are helping other people. One of the interesting things about investment in Christian work, uh, giving your time in service to the Lord, uh, using the gifts that the Lord has given you, both natural talents and spiritual gifts in service for the Lord, that when he says, what you reap is the result of the sowing and the cultivation, you realize there's a long delay between when you began the investment and when you reap the rewards. I grew up here in Southern California and knew nothing about farming, but uh, I had farmer friends when I lived in Iowa for 23 years, and so we talked shop. We, you know, I said, like, how does this work? Uh, I noticed you guys can't always plant on the same day, usually the first week in May, but it depends if, if it's been raining hard and the fields are mud, you can't plant. And I said, but it seems like you're always harvesting around the same time of year. How does that work? And they said, well, there's different seed. We have 120-day seed. We have 110-day seed. We have 100-day seed, 90-day seed. What we mean by that is when it will be ready to be harvested. And I'd say, well, why are you fighting with other farmers to be the first ones in your field and to plant as quickly as possible? And why would you want 120-day seed instead of 90-day seed? Because of the quality of it. You're going to get better quality ears of corn if you can leave it in the ground longer and if uh, you are cultivating it in a, in a way that will bring the greatest increase. But it's nerve-wracking because when you have this little plant that's just you know, a few inches tall and hail falls, if one of those little hailstones hint, hits your little sprout, it breaks it, and that entire stock is gone forever. And so you are nervous about weather, and you're nervous about pests, you're nervous about weeds, you have all kinds of reasons why you have to pay attention to this investment that you've placed in the ground. I, I asked one of the farmers, how much did you spend on seed that you invested in the ground? He said $30,000. And I said, like, $30,000 of seed? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's more than, like, the front 40 and the back 40. He goes, oh, no, I do much more than that. I actually rent other fields beyond those I inherited from my father. And so I, I plow a number of fields and plant a number of fields in order to make enough money to make a living uh, being a farmer. We'll apply that to the principle of investing in the Lord's work. It may take time, and it may have a result that is far down the line, and a question is, will you be patient enough, and will you keep working with this, such as pulling weeds, you know, such as making sure it's doing well? Can you handle the thought of the goal, the result, the fruit coming down the line. Can you be patient? Farmers work hard, and then they can get a great result if the Lord blesses their work. I work with students, for example. Uh, let's talk about the student I just told you that blew through a lot of his $1,500. Well, it's the eighth week of the semester, and he's not been going to chapel. He has not been doing a lot of his homework. Where is it gonna stand 
for semester grades that come up on the 15th week of the semester. He's in trouble. So he has placed himself in a very difficult situation where he probably crammed for his final exams in high school thinking like, that's how I got good grades. I'm good at cramming at the last moment. In college, it gets more difficult. It's going to get increasingly difficult. And we can't be that way spiritually, where we're saying to ourselves, it doesn't matter what I do right now. I can be selfish and spend everything on my own selfish pursuits now. And I've got my entire life to get serious about spiritual things and eventually start serving the Lord. I can be as selfish as I want right now. Can you see the logic of how Paul is arguing using the example of farming to say that's not going to work. If you're going to plant your seeds in July and think you're going to harvest them before snow is on the ground, that's not going to work. You're going to have to plant your seed in May. You're going to have to harvest in early October. And so you've got to plan ahead and meet deadlines all along the way. Some of us say, well, what happens if I'm behind already. You could say, I'm already middle-aged, and I haven't done much for the Lord. What do I do now? Think of runners, for example, who run races. It's not so much how, far, how fast they start out. It's how well they finish. And so they may have had a slower pace at the beginning of the race, and they may have turned it on halfway or two-thirds of the way through the race. And you see these occasionally in these running races where a person who was in the back of the pack comes all the way to the front and ends up winning the race. What I'm saying to you is in the grace of God, you still have time to serve him. And you can begin serving him right now. You can begin to invest in things that matter, matter for eternity, make a difference in the lives of people. Rather than saying, I spent all my life pleasing myself, you could say, these are people who've come to know the Lord, come to serve the Lord, have actually reproduced by sharing their faith with others that I have had a part in, in influencing them for the things of Christ. He says, verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. When Jesus was working with people, he kept telling stories about stewardship. He says, the steward who did really well and was found very faithful, I gave him more responsibility to. The steward who did very poorly and actually squandered what I originally gave to him, I did not give more responsibility to. In the same way, if we want the Lord to use us, we can't give up quickly and grow weary and say, I can't see any results yet. I should just give up. He says, no, let us not lose heart in doing good. In due time, we will reap if we don't grow weary. So he's basically saying, don't give up. We should do good to all people. We should help people, and we should be people who don't lose heart but finish strong, pleasing the Lord in all respects. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Then he begins to close down the letter. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you 
with my own hand. This has caused interpreters to say, like, is is he treating them like babies and is doing baby writing? I remember when I was five years old and I wrote my name on the wall going down the stairs of our house. It started out with a little K and then the E was a little bigger and then the N was bigger and then the next N was real big and then the Y was huge. I should have used somebody else's name because my dad figured out who'd done it. And I got in trouble and we had to wash the wall and all of that. No, it's probably not that he's making fun of them because he feels they're too immature. Uh, Some people think he's writing in large letters because he has poor eyesight. They were wondering if that might be the thorn in his flesh. He talks about you might be willing to pluck out your eyes and give them to me. That's how much you appreciate me. No, that's um, probably not it. Uh, Some saying, is it like writing in bold print for emphasis? But what he says here at the end isn't quite as important as what he's already said. What appears to be taking place is... Writing in those days on papyri with a stylus was very difficult, and so they had professionals that would do this for you. You would dictate to them, and the amanuensis would be a professional writer that would write it out for you. However, when you got to the end, you wanted to show this was really for you, and so you take the stylus, and you start writing in your own handwriting. I think that's what he's saying. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, this is my distinguishing mark. This is the way I end all of my letters. So you can sense this really is the Apostle Paul. This would be a lot like us printing out a letter and then signing it with a pen at the end so that you know it really is me, that is my signature. Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This has been part of what the entire letter was about, is that Judaizers had followed Paul to the four cities in the Galatian region and had said, don't trust Paul. He's not an apostle. He's teaching easy believism. You're not really saved. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the dietary restrictions of the laws of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul writes saying, that is not true. That's adding works to salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. We don't add anything. We don't give anything. We don't do this to motivate God to save us. He saves us by his grace. And notice Paul is saying, these Judaizers are trying to make a good showing in their flesh by compelling you to be circumcised simply so they won't be persecuted by their own friends. In Galatians 1.10, he says they were men-pleasers. Here he says, They care about what other people think about them, and so they're trying to show off how many scalps they've gotten, and they're just trying to avoid persecution. So why would the Galatians give up salvation by grace through faith and add works to it? He's saying, don't be so foolish. You're being used. We need to do what is right regardless of persecution. We shouldn't let anybody manipulate us for their own pursuits. Should the Galatians help the Judaizers not be persecuted? Not at all. Verse 13, 
For those who are circumcised don't even keep the law themselves. This is astounding. Though they're insisting that the Galatians keep the law and perform well enough in order to be saved, he says these Judaizers are hypocrites. They don't even keep it themselves. They want to boast in your flesh. In other words, they want to take credit for your works. Listen to this. It says in verse 13, But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They want to take credit for what you do. In Galatians 4.17, he said, they're trying to make you dependent on them for information as to how to be saved. They want you to seek them so that they can control you. This is abuse. And Paul is calling it out. And we need to be less gullible about people who try to control us and dominate us. We need to be wary about people there are people in so-called uh, Christian churches uh, that try to control where you live, where you work, who you could marry. They try to control every aspect of your life. Learn from the book of Galatians that our standing before God is a gift from him offered by his grace in an undeserved manner, accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What's required of us is that we Stop trusting in ourselves and our own performance. Instead, transfer that trust to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his offer of salvation. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Period. We do not add performance or works to what we think may save us. We can't even say, well, Jesus did 98% of the work on the cross. I just need to do the last 2%. That ruins everything. That poisons the soup. You can't add works or you have ruined the whole thing. He says, verse 14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The, the, the cross is shameful in many ways. It was meant to shame those criminals that they were humbling as they were killing them. And the Jews view it as so shameful that they can't imagine that God would use the cross to save us. Yes, the cross humbles us, and anyone who comes before the cross realizes how much. Christ humbled himself to die on our place. And he says, I have to separate myself from the world, and I have to be separated to Jesus Christ. In the sense of the world being crucified to me and I to the world, my boasting can only be in what Christ has done for me. I break the control and the hold that Satan and the world system has over me as it opposed Christ, and I follow Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that he has placed in me. Verse 15, remember this was the sign of the covenant, and this is what they asked the adult men 
uh, to receive. He says, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You might think that that really isn't what the original reason for circumcision was. It was given as a sign of the covenant. But even in the Mosaic Law, we are told it was to picture the change in our hearts. That physical surgery was actually to teach us about the need for a spiritual surgery. I read from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. This is not new theology. This is old theology. Altering a person physically by surgery does not save them. What that is to symbolize is the need to give our hearts, the core of our beings, who we are as people, to give ourselves back to God wholly and to say, I want to be yours. Circumcision of the heart. The desire to have a whole heart. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 talks about the need for a new birth and a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 16. And those who will walk by this rule, the rule is faith as opposed to works, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You notice either the word to or the word upon appears twice in verse 16, uh, once referring to those who walk by this rule, and then especially the subset of that, those who are actually Jewish themselves and also who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The word for and is the normal word for and. However, there are some within Christianity who do not believe that Christ is coming again to set up a kingdom, but believe that the kingdom is right now. It's not a future literal political reign on, of Christ on earth for a thousand years, but it is a spiritual reign in your heart only. And the way they fit that in to the teaching of scripture is to say that the church has inherited the promises that were once given to Israel because the promises given to Israel has their Messiah ruling over them in the kingdom. So in order to have no kingdom in the future, they're called amillennials because they don't have a future kingdom, they have a kingdom spiritually speaking now, they need to say that the church is the new Israel. And so they translate the word for and here in verse 16, the last line, as even, meaning that both groups are one, those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even the Israel of God, saying that the church is the new Israel, the church has now possessed the promises given to Israel, and hence the millennium is occurring right now. It's a little hard to fit the prophecies of 
I don't mean little, I'm using that facetiously. It's a lot hard to fit the promises and the future prophecies of what's happening during the millennial kingdom and those judgments into this age. And so they spiritualize them and they make them not quite what they're described in the book of Revelation. Is it possible for the word chi, the word for and, to be translated even? Yes, rarely, not most likely. It's much better to translate this more normally and to say he's speaking about a, a set of those who walk according to belief that our salvation is by grace through faith alone. And the subset of that are the believing Jews. Jews who know that faith in Christ is the way in which we're saved. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. He's asking for a little sympathy here. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about five times he had to bear the 39 lashes, and hence his back has terrible scars. He calls them brand marks. These scars from persecution speak more eloquently about how he is related to Christ than the fact that he is circumcised. He was born of Jewish parents. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He is a Jewish Jew of all types, a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he's not so proud of the circumcision. He's much more proud of the fact that he has suffered bodily for his faith in Jesus Christ. And the letter ends the way it began with grace. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. And our takeaways tonight are two. One, the repetition of what has been taught this entire book. We cannot work or earn or motivate God to save us by what we do. It's solely by his grace. The same thing with sanctification. We cannot motivate God to develop us into more Christ-likeness by performing so well that we have earned his favor to sanctify us further. That too is by grace. In fact, if we really wanted to boil it down, we'd realize that every gift God gives us is not earned or deserved. Every gift he gives us is by grace. And that the motivation to serve him is not to manipulate him. The motivation to serve him is out of love for what he has done for us. So he blesses us out of his grace. We serve him out of love. That's the theme of the book of Galatians. And particularly for this passage, he says, let's not grow weary in well-doing. Let's be careful what kind of seed we sow, where we sow it, how we cultivate it, and let's see a major increase at the end. Let's be patient as we invest in the work of God and see God bring it to fruitfulness. Oh, Father, we praise you and thank you for the Apostle Paul willing to be beaten regularly and eventually even beheaded for his faith in you. Father, we thank you for his boldness in speech, allowing us to hear clearly the truth. Father, we praise and thank you that our salvation is not because we deserve it, but because you're so loving and giving. We receive the gift that you've given us by faith. Thank you for loving us and setting your love upon us. Thank you for saving us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.